Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. 20th Century Studios presents Vacation Friends 2, now streaming only on Hulu. Look at us, all together again. We just wanted to give you guys a real honeymoon. Shots! 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 Now streaming. He was just released from jail. Where can I get a drink around here? Back on vacation. This place is nice. It's drug lord nice. I'm sorry, drug lord nice? With more baggage. Ever since he showed up, he turned this relaxing vacation into total chaos. Who does that? Vacation Friends 2, rated R, now streaming only on Hulu. This episode of Red Inca, we talk about Oman cricket. That is where the World Cup is being played, but so few of us really know that much about them other than the one win over Ireland in the last tournament. So I got on an expert who covers a lot of cricket in that region. Paul Radley, sports writer for the National Newspaper in the UAE. We discuss what Oman cricket was like a decade ago. The man who funds it all, Pankaj Kimji. The concrete wickets that they used to play on. How quickly Oman cricket has risen. The great Julie Mendes, who is their coach. We have a brief segue to talk about what's going on with UAE cricket before we look at what the future of Oman cricket might be. You're in the UAE, so it means you are the centre of all things cricket at all times, especially more so since COVID. You're probably the most popular man in the world since COVID. (laughs) You're writing on everything. In fact, as we speak, I think you're preparing to head off to the IPL final as well. But I wanted to get you on to talk about Oman. You actually, I don't know if you remember this, but you were my first guest ever on this podcast. Yes, I do remember that. And and I've run out of friends, so you've had to come back on. (laughs) I'm now recycling people for their second go. But yeah, I really want to talk about Oman. So when I was with Scotland, everyone was talking about Oman, uh, the team, but also the destination. And I sort of said flippantly, well... I've already been to UAE. I don't need to go to Oman as well. And everyone in the team from Scotland was like, no, you don't understand. Oman cricket's incredible and the facilities are great. People just don't know this, but they've built like a cricket paradise about 20 Ks out of Muscat. Is that where it is? Yeah. So I I felt exactly the same before I'd gone now. I thought, well, you know, we're in the UAE here. You know, you can't get better facilities for cricket. But well, I wouldn't say that they're better than the, the facilities that there are in the UAE, but the ground itself is an absolute stunner. It's at the bottom of, I think you perhaps say it's not quite in a valley. It's, it's like a big plain, basically, with the Hajj Mountains all sort of around it. Absolutely stunning place. And the facilities, they're absolutely awesome, really. They've got a seven-lane indoor school, uh, you know, seven-lane of Nets indoor school, two lovely big ovals. And then it's obviously it's had a spruce up now for the World Cup that's coming up. So it's, um, it's an absolutely lovely place to be, to be honest. Talk to me about Pankaj Kimji. Um, Pronouncing that correctly, am I? 
as far as I'm aware, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you and I, you know, obviously deal with a lot of people in associate cricket and quite often the burning passion comes from a local person and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it comes from an Indian or Australian or, you know, New Zealander who happens to be there. But he is an Omani. I've never said that word out loud. I'm assuming that's the correct term yeah. from someone from Oman. And he got into cricket. He studied a little bit in India when he was younger. And then he spent six months selling, what, laundry detergent in the UK? Yeah, yeah. Well, he did do that. And he loved it. He lived in um, Bristol. And uh, yeah, he had that job with Procter Gamble. Basically, he was he was already part of the family business back in in Muscat. To, to talk about his, um, his family, basically, they've been there for six generations. They're originally from Gujarat in India. Um, and he speaks Gujarati. And so the family built up this business from way back when, and, you know, I think it was 1870 when they sold there, something like that. Now they're basically the biggest employers, or I'd, I'd assume one of, one of the biggest employers, at least certainly one of the biggest companies in all of Oman. So he, he was already part of the family business. He just finished his studies, basically, university studies in the UK, came back. The oil prices dropped, basically. So they thought that the economic advance of, of Muscat would slow a little bit. So he wanted to learn some other skills. So he went off and worked for Procter & Gamble, who were, they'd become agents of the Kimji Ramdas company in Muscat already. So uh, he, he wanted to go and sort of learn the ropes there. And they, yeah, they sent him off uh, as like a traveling salesman all around the West Country in, in the UK. He said it was hard work. He said he was doing like 200 miles a day, every day, trying to sell like, you know, fairy liquid and things like that. But he said that it was, you know, it's the making of him, basically, you know, learn how to run a business and, and be a salesman. And I mean, he does kind of run Oman Cricket like yeah. a business as much as anything. He employs a lot of the players through his family's company, doesn't he? So it is very much a, um, not a one-man show, would be unfair, but him and his family have invested a lot of money and a lot of time, and they've got money from the government directly for Oman Cricket. Without them, we're probably... They're not here. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. And it's probably a little bit different to say here in the UAE where a lot of cricket was funded by, say, a wealthy Emirati businessman. How the Kimjis have done it is, I assume they've given some of their money along the lines, but they have petitioned and lobbied their contacts in, in government and, and got, you know, funding through, through the sports ministry. So obviously, as captains of industry as they've been down the years, they've, they've had a bit of sway in in bringing things about and what they've done is, you know, within uh, 10 years ago, they didn't have a grass cricket field anywhere in the country. Now they've only got two. But so it's, it's really remarkable, actually, to think how good they are. They're top of the World Cup League Division 2, got high hopes of making it through the first round of the World Cup to come from just having concrete wickets and sand outfields um, recently as 10 years ago. And the, and the majority of cricket still played by recreational cricketers on, on fields like that. There's only obviously so many people that can get on the two grass fields there. So to have a team with justifiable ambitions of making it through to the World Cup proper is it's an incredible story, really. And for him and his family as well, like essentially they're the first team from outside the Test Nations to host and play in a T20 World Cup. We've seen that in the one day as before. But Oman is, well, I think we've all been swept up in the Thai and the Brazilian women and, and the Nepalese men and the Afghanistani men, you know, these incredible stories. Oman sort of just slipped up behind everyone else, but for the people on the ground, like, and, you know, having met a couple of them during those World Cup qualified, they are as passionate about this as anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Driven by, uh, obviously, Delic Mendes has been probably there about as long as the grass has been there. Obviously, he's come from a background in Sri Lanka where it's, you know, obviously there's, Millions of people want to play cricket. It's not perhaps the, the case in Oman. 
So he's basically built a squad from, I think Pankaj Kimji was telling me the other day that at any one time, there's about 50 or 60 teams in, in Oman that play cricket. And obviously, there's only a, a few elite players that come out of that. So he's had this squad of players, uh, Dilip Mendes, the coach, for quite a long time. They, they, you don't see too many changes in their lineup. Um, and he's just really worked on them. They've got a couple of, um, you know, strength and conditioning trainers from uh, South Africa that Dilip speaks very highly of. And yeah, it's just basically they've had a lot of focus on a particular set of players um, that sort of brought them to this level, really. There are a lot of associate coaches that use it as a stepping stone, sometimes just to get first-class jobs back in their own country, sometimes to try and get international jobs and everything. I mean, Dilip's age, I don't want to age him, but he's kind of at the end of his career rather than at the start, like, you know, some of the other younger coaches coming through. I mean, if you look at some of the guys like Ryan Campbell and Shane Berger, they're like at the start of their journeys, aren't they? You're on their first or second team internationally. And so... It almost feels like a good match that he's been there for 10 years. He's been able to grow them up. Obviously, he's a brilliant cricketer for Sri Lanka when they were essentially an associate or very early on in their time. Was involved with them in around 96. Was he the team manager in the 96 World Cup? Team manager, yeah. That, right? he's, he's had loads of roles, but at the World yeah. Cup in 96, he was team manager, yeah. So, I mean, you think about there's almost a level of stability that Oman Cricket has been able to build. And they're also doing it a little bit like, uh, I suppose it's almost like a system similar to what the England women's team did, where they've like, okay, we have found our 15 to 20 players and we are going to almost professionalize those players. They're the ones who we're going to put all of our time into, which means they've been able to develop. It might limit them in the future, but in the short term, it's meant that they've really been able to grow quite well. They had a good moment at the 2016 World Cup, didn't they? Yeah, they beat Ireland. That's right. I think you, you're exactly right. They're trying to professionalise that team in the hope that if they have some success, like as you just mentioned, winning their game in the 2016 World Cup in India against Ireland, and then hopefully, you know, with this amazing platform that they've got now of playing matches at, at home in a World Cup again. So they want, obviously, the team to be as good as they possibly can. So they put a lot of their focus in that rather than development of the game as yet. So they want to have this team that is sort of flagship that everybody can look and see, oh, we've got this team. I want to be part of that. So that will then start spreading. Hopefully, I assume they're thinking success will, will start breeding success and, and attract more people to it. But they have started also. They kept a lot of the previous players that have been part of the team as coaches. So so the development is spreading as, as a result of the focus that they put on that particular set of players. As far as the local players go, and that's a big thing with associate cricket and, you know, you, you obviously, your main team that you cover is the UAE and we've had Zoltan Zarawani, but we haven't had that many other local Emirati players, although there are obviously are UAE players who are born and bred in the UAE, mm. even if they are considered not UAE players by the local authorities. How strong are the local players in Oman at the moment and how many of these guys are immigrants? So they've got one Omani national in the team, uh, Sufian Mahmood. And basically, they had, funnily enough, researching the, the article I wrote recently on it, I found 10 years ago, we had done a story with a touring Imani team that had come over. And the, it was actually Pankaj Kimti's dad who was um, quoted in the story. And he said that at that time, all the local teams, like if you had a domestic cricket team, you were compelled to have one Imani national at least in your team. And that rule has sort of been dissipated a bit now. It's, it's not the case. But I think their plan, apparently their plans were hit a little bit by uh, COVID. They had this plan to take cricket into schools like Amani National Schools and get Amani Nationals playing that way. So they have got a mind to do it, but they're not going to do it in like a, you know, a quota system anymore. They're just going to hope that there's going to be sort of an organic take up among Amanis. 
Has Oman been good at other sports? I mean, it's just, I cannot tell you how little I know about this country <laughs> other than roughly I could find it on a map. Well, yeah, my, I, I suppose they're a little bit like lots of people in this region that the sport of the indigenous people would be football. And Oman had Ali Al Habsi as a goalkeeper for a few premiership teams. So football had this massive hero that was, a tra- even though it was already the sport of, every, of all the Amanis, uh, having this great player meant that it attracted even more people. So other sports are just trying to pick up the cost off from, from football, I suppose. Reverse swing is one of the most incredible parts of our game, but it doesn't happen by accident. It comes from a team effort where each and every member has a job to prepare the ball as well as they can, and then through that group effort, they can get that ball to move gracefully through the air. And you know all this because you're a smart cricket fan, and yet you go out on the field to play with your balls in disarray. If you treat your pubic hair in a shoddy manner, you won't be able to pick up as many wickets as you'd like. But Manscaped have the invention for you. The Lawn Mower 4.0, guaranteed to make your balls reverse. Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0 is as graceful as a cover drive, as efficient as a Yorker in the depth. And the Lawnmower 4.0 is a true all-rounder, none of that bits and pieces nonsense. So if you're desperate for a breakthrough with your pubic hair, try the Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code REDINCA. That's 20% off with free worldwide shipping at manscaped.com and use the code REDINCA. Let's get your balls going the other way. I mean, you talked about 10 years ago. I want to go back sort of before. So 10 years ago is when they first got their turf wickets, right? What were they like 20 and 25 years ago, sort of at the beginning of this journey? Well, as a team or the, the facilities? No, no, as a team. I know they didn't have facilities. They were yeah, concrete yeah. wickets back then. Like, were they, is Division 6 the bottom one or Division 5? I always forget. The, the bad division. <laughs> so, yeah, so they were down there, they're down those reaches, and they'd win matches in that, and they'd go up and get promoted, and then they'd get knocked back down. And Pankajati was explaining to me the other day that it was just because they'd go, obviously, you go to these other tournaments elsewhere, go on these tours, and obviously they couldn't host any tournaments because they didn't have grounds of their own. They'd go on these tours and, and they'd meet up, like the players that had been selected would meet up a week before. They wouldn't have a coach. They'd just do a bit of nets and a bit of catching practice. And, they, and they'd get there and he said they, they were bamboozled by the turf because obviously the ball would do far more than it would do on a, on a concrete wicket in Oman. Um, and that was sort of what ha- hamstrung them, really. So that that's why they had this big push. If they really wanted to develop the game and get a better team, they had to have grass. And they initially built a net wicket block at the Kimji's family farm in um, a place called Barker, which is just up the coast from Muscat towards UAE, about an hour up the coast. And the players would go from Muscat three times a week to just have a few net sessions there. And also, obviously, that there's a reason that they were they were a limited side back then. And, um, you know, obviously the, the reason that they've advanced so much is because they've got so much better facilities to work with now. They start to get good probably, well, before the 2016 World Cup. So in the five or so years before that, they start to improve. Who are the sort of major players that they have? They've got a brilliant left-arm swing bowler called Bilal Khan, who swings the white ball more than anyone else you'd, you'd probably see. me. probably reminds me a little bit of Trent Bolt, actually, I suppose. Uh, he's not as quick. They've got a uh, really excites, really watchable sort of effervescent opener called Jatinder Singh. He's got lots of shots and he's really expressive in, in terms of how he is as a person and as how he bats as well. Um, if he gets off to, to some good starts, he'll be really good to watch in the, in the World Cup. They actually, in terms of the team, I'd say they remind me a little bit, if you know the New Zealand team that had Victoria and Orem, late middle order, how if you'd knocked out the top six, you, you still hadn't beaten them. Amana a little bit like that. They bat very low. I think Sandy Good, if I pronounce that correctly, he comes in about eight or nine and he's a brilliant batsman. 
the number of times that he'll either win games for his team from that position or get them back into a game that seems completely lost. He, he does that quite frequently. And he, and he's batting eight or nine. You don't often see him bowl. Uh, and they've got players at the top of the order who bowl as well. So, yeah, it seems like some guys miss out, but they seem to know their roles particularly well. So they're a team, I'd say, you never you haven't beaten them until you've knocked them all out, basically. When you talk about the roles, they have a lot of different players. It's not like some associate teams where there's a few talented sort of club players and a couple of guys who are like keeping it together. There's a lot of different skill sets in that Oman team. As you said, even just having a left arm bowler in associate cricket is a huge thing to be able yeah. to have. And, and again, you know, not that many associate teams bat beyond six or seven either. Yeah, no, exactly right. They've got loads of bases covered. It, it, even it within um, one player, they've got this brilliant uh, top-order batsman, Aki Bilyas, who also bowls as well. Bowls useful overs, like he could get through four overs for them, definitely. And he bowls uh, leg spin to right-handed batsmen and uh, off spin to, to left-handers. So they've got a versatile player just, just within the one player there. But then their captain also bowls some left-arm spin, even though he bats in, in the top order. Yeah, they've got all the bases covered. They've got leg spinner, a couple of left-arm spinners, good left-arm swing bowler, and uh, Kali Muller is a right-arm fast bowler as well. Yeah, they've got all the bases covered and and um, got those batting as well. It's a tough group for them. They've got Bangladesh, obviously a test-playing nation, who've just mm. made a bit of a mess of Australia and New Zealand of recent times. Scotland, who are very well-suited to T20 cricket and also have a thriving club scene. And you talk about having 60 teams in Oman. Scotland probably has that many, you know, in, in one suburb of Edinburgh. And PMG, who is almost an outlier in cricket in that it's almost one whole village or one whole family playing. It's not an easy group to go through. Those are very, I mean, I don't think either of the groups are particularly easy, but it's going to be tough for them to go through to the next level, isn't it? Yeah, but I think they'd be confident. They've also had these games against Scotland in the 50-over competition uh, last month and Scotland beat them, but then, and then the cyclone hit and they didn't get to play again. But I think they'd be confident because they're flying high in that 50-over competition. I don't know whether being on home saw, they might, like the emotion of that might, I don't know whether that work in their favour or not. But I think they'd be confident. It's the Scot- I suppose the Scotland game, like they'd definitely be confident against PNG. And then the Scotland game, I suppose, mm. is the telling one. But And then Bangladesh have lost both their warm-up matches. So I think they'd, they'd have a bit of belief that they could cause an upset there as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see them winning a game. It's whether they can win, the, I suppose, the two and every, have everything fall in, in their yeah. uh, favour to get through to the next level. When we talk about Pankaj Kimji, what is their plan for Oman in the future? Because it doesn't have as many cricketers as some of the other nations. You know, it doesn't have the facilities as some of the other nations. So what is their goal over the next five or ten years? Where are they aiming? Well, they're putting a new field in, so they'll take them up to three turf fields. <laughs> Um, that's going to be 33 percent more. No, where's the 50 percent more? Isn't it? I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll do my maths later. And then the plan is well, I, I suppose Dilip Mendes will have done 10 years near enough if they can keep him on board, keep him motivated to keep making the progress that he has done. Working with this team, that their stated goal is to get into the 2023 World Cup. Everybody's trying to do that, though. It's going to be tricky for them, but they're doing as well as they possibly could do at the moment. That's their next major goal after this competition. And then, just like I was saying before, they're just hopeful that if they have this successful team that that will attract people to the sport, that that there'll be a bloom in participation. You know, you cover cricket a lot in this area, obviously. It's, you know, your specialty. Although, as I said before, you now cover every single team. I mean, the Ashes might still end up in the UAE at this rate. (laughs) What's your sort of overriding thought on Oman? Are they going in the right direction or is it going to be an uphill battle? You know, where do you sort of see their future from your perspective? 
I think from what they've done so far, from virtually nothing 10 years ago to where they are now, just goes to show that they can just keep developing. The thing that's amazing about it is that it's been an unchecked rise. They haven't stopped improving till this point. And there's other mm. teams, like if you look at UAE, they'll have a year or two of improvement and then perhaps they'll change the coach or captain and performances will dip or maybe an important player will leave or maybe six important players will get chucked out for corruption. They were basically all teams, like if you look at the Netherlands, you look at anybody, Ireland obviously have, have lost a, a lot of, you know, the nucleus of, mm. of a really strong side they had all at once. So, so they're, you know, going through re- rebuilding phase themselves. Oman haven't had that moment yet. They've just been rising and rising and rising. So I suppose the problem for them might be similar to what, what we were just saying about Ireland in that these players that they've got now have brought them to this position. Some of them are early 30s, maybe mid 30s. If they all sort of go together, then what comes underneath that is going to be what really tests them, I suppose. In that region, obviously the UAE and Oman, trying to think if there's any other sort of growing cricket teams around there. Is there like a, a sense of bonding between all those teams or is it I'm obviously UAE have had their own problems which I will quickly ask you on in a minute but you know is there like a movement there or is everyone kind of still on their own yeah I'd say you've probably experienced this with Scotland of that tier of cricket they do feel a bond with each other because they go through a lot of the same issues in terms of what they need to do to play the game but in terms of you know helping each other out I wouldn't necessarily say that that's the case no they've tried to organize a few games UAE and Oman because obviously they're so close to each other in the lead up to this and it just didn't end up happening. Obviously, UAE's got, you know, a lot of busy stuff happening. And then obviously with COVID, um, Oman was actually shut until the start of September. Borders were completely closed because of COVID. So it was pretty difficult to do. But in terms of joined up thinking together, no, I think they probably regard each other as rivals, I'd say. So yeah, don't necessarily want to help each other out too much. No, that, that makes sense. And uh just on UAE, obviously they lost a third of their team, as I'm fond of saying, at the World Cup qualifiers. Players have been caught match fixing and all sorts of things have, have happened. What's the current state of UAE cricket? The current state of UAE cricket, you can be really optimistic about it. I'd say it's only two years ago that they had the massive corruption scandal that's ended up costing them six players, six senior players chucked out for a combined total of 41 years for obviously breaches of the anti-corruption code. Since then, the, the profile of the team has changed massively. They had, at that time, they were building an under-19s team to go to the World Cup in South Africa. And it's not always been the case that a good age group setup manifests itself into a strong, like those players don't always follow the path that mm. they would do in other countries because of lots of different things, including the visa process here. Once you get to 18, you're not on your mum and dad's visa anymore. You have to get yourself a job or you might go abroad to study anyway. So a lot of those players who were talented would get lost to the system. In the past two years, because of the consequences of the six players being chucked out, they've had to give the young players a chance in the the first team straight away because there's not a huge amount of other choices and they put a lot of work into these players anyway. So they might as well try and see the fruits of that. And these guys have really proven that they can do it. There's some um, very promising young players knocking around here. Um, which is good. And then there are other players that come through the more sort of established route of, of UA cricket, which is basically people coming over from Pakistan to play in a staff team, end up being good and then, and staying here for three years and then they're eligible to play. Like UA have just got this unbelievably brilliant opener called Mohamed Ozim, who scored 100 against Ireland in a run chase. They, it, they beat Ireland in, in a, they had a three-match series and they were awful in the first one in UAE. 
and then absolutely thrashed Ireland in the two games after that. And this guy, Wazim, in the, in the match that clinched it in Dubai, scored 100 when they were chasing 135 to win the game. He scored 77% of the runs. And he is absolutely brilliant. And he's come through the, the way, like he's been here for just over three years, whatever it is, the, the eligibility that you did need to do on residency. And there'll be the odd player that comes through that way, but unlike before in the past. So it's a really long-winded way of answering your question, Derek. There will be young players more so than there have been in the past as well. So I think things are really looking good for the UAE team. Beautiful. And just, just to finish up on Oman then, they're going to be hosting this tournament. I think you and I both know that it's not really the major part of the tournament. It's, well, it's basically another round of qualifying as much as anything, but the ICC have put it together so it looks better and they can pretend there are more teams in the tournament. <laughs> but if you're in Oman and you're a casual sports fan and Oman are playing in a World Cup at home, they're hosting it, there's a chance, isn't there, of actually catching fire a little bit within the community in Oman in general? Is that the, I mean, I'm assuming that's the hope of Pankaj Kimji and uh, Oman Cricket. Yeah, they must be people living in Oman and Omani nationals, you know, might be different people from different backgrounds. When they see that, they see that it's going on. It's a World Cup on their doorstep. Definitely, they're, they're going to uh, show an interest. I think that one thing is the ground. It's in a little town called Al Emirat, um, which is about 25 minutes outside Muscat. So it's not like you're going to get too much passing traffic. But to be honest, the, the ground is with temporary stands. It's going to have... 3,000, 4,000 people, and I reckon it'll be sold out every day, especially because, yeah, Bangladesh play. Whenever they go anywhere, they take loads of fans with them. And there are a lot of Bangladeshis in Muscat. When I was there last month, the guy in my hotel cleaning the, the rooms, he came up to me, he goes, oh, oh sir, um, Safiullah, is it Safiullah from Bangladesh? He lives near where I'm from, back home. I was like, oh, right, that's interesting. Why are you telling me this? How do you know uh, that I know anything about cricket? Because oh, I saw your pass for the, that I had for, for the matches that were there. And I said to him, oh, you know Bangladesh come for the World Cup? He goes, yeah, yeah, I know. He goes, I'm hoping I can get a day off and go and watch them. So I think the ground will be as packed as it can be. And it'd be absolutely brilliant for Oman. Hopefully it'll have a, a lasting effect. Beautiful. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Paul. Again. No, that's all, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jared. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. If you're enjoying Red Inca but want to know more about Fred Spoffer's moustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from Cricket's past, well, I have a history of cricket podcast called Double Century. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app. Sports Social Podcast Network.